we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Welcome to Talking Australia. My guest today is a man who understands the power of storytelling to create awareness and encourage action on some of the grand environmental challenges that we face today. He began life in a small community in northern Tasmania, but today he works out of Hong Kong from where he operates his award-winning international documentary-making operation. He's made films with the likes of David Attenborough and the National Geographic Channel, and in 2017 released A Plastic Ocean, a landmark documentary that has seen Craig become an activist and outspoken advocate for political and social change on ocean health and climate change. He's currently putting the finishing touches to a new film about the loss of the world's glaciers. He's also a bit of an action man as a keen surfer, climber, diver and pilot. He has now been named Tasmanian of the Year for 2022. Craig Leeson, welcome to Talking Australia. Hi, thank you. Great to be here. And congratulations on the Tassie of the Year Award. Thank you. How did you feel when you heard about it? Yeah, it's it's actually just to get it correct, because I know they're, they're, they're quite uh, funny about these things, but it's the 2022 Taz Australian of the Year, just to clarify that, um, which is a a, a fantastic award and a real shock to me, actually. And, in fact, I arrived uh, at my family's home in Melbourne just today and my parents, who are up from Tasmania, bought up the award for me. And it's the first time I've seen it because I accepted the award when I was in Glasgow, actually, at... um, at COP26 and uh, live streamed into the award ceremony in Hobart. So it it really stunned me when I sat there and actually looked at this award because it was unexpected. Um, I still don't know who nominated me, but thank you. Um, and what it really does is it, it really gives you the feeling of appreciation, that other people appreciating the work that's being done and also the understanding that now here is another platform that we can tell these stories on. And that's what's super important, is that it gives us another avenue to uh, take the information, the research, the science that uh, we've collected around the world as we film these documentaries and present it to a whole new audience. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic uplift for uh, your profile, but obviously more importantly for all of the um, activities that you're involved in and the, and the and the causes that you represent um and we mentioned before uh, the power of storytelling really to change hearts and minds and influence public policy um and you founded uh, a plastic oceans foundation after the success of the documentary in 2017 uh, it was a hugely successful film with david attenborough even referring to it as 
uh, the most important film of our time. How surprised were you by the reaction to that film? Uh, we were extremely surprised because, uh, um, you know, we, we, the film took a long time to make. Uh, it was eight years in the making. We went to 21 countries to make the film. And the reason it took so long, I mean, initially it was a two-year project, but as we travelled further around the globe and we found this problem was, was so bad everywhere we went, more questions were asked and, and we needed more answers. And eventually it turned from a marine-based documentary into a human health documentary as we found out what happens when this plastic gets into the food chain and travels up the food chain. So we'd been working on it for a long time. Um, the first edit that we did of it, uh, we sat back and watched it and we were so shocked ourselves by how depressing it actually was. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd seen the footage over and over again and uh, we'd witnessed it personally on the ground in terms of the damage and pain and death it was causing the marine organisms around the world. Um, but having watched the film condensed, we realised that in order to get a, a decent audience, we didn't want people leaving the cinema feeling like they'd been shot in the head. You know, I mean, it was that depressing. So we went back and spent another six months uh, filming, scripting and re-editing the third act of the film so that we could include solutions because it was critical, I, I think, that uh, people actually left feeling there's something they can do. There's a part of this solution process that they can uh, assist with, take part in or, or become a part of. And I think that that, was, that helped make the film successful. Um, but also we targeted young children um, and we did that because we knew that kids would involve their parents. And that's exactly what happened. When we released the film, I traveled around the world and spoke to schools and educational institutions all over the planet. And children went home and said to their parents, mum, why are you wrapping my sandwiches in plastic? Uh, don't you know that plastic is really bad for us? And the parents are going, what are you talking about? And the kids went, you've got to watch this film. And so the children took the parents to watch the film. The parents then came to conferences and talks that I spoke at or invited me as executives of their own companies to come and talk to their staff or, uh, or even into the political arena. And the film really took off from there. And so uh, we, I think, getting back to your original question, were shocked by the reach that we had with it and how quickly that happened. And in fact, within the first three weeks of it being released, on iTunes, Amazon, and Netflix at the same time, it was the number one documentary on iTunes in the US, the UK, and Canada. So um, we achieved what we wanted to do, and that was create awareness. And that's uh, really important. I think that sense of empowering people um, to be able to, 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 to do something and giving people hope. And it's interesting that it was the kids that you kind of targeted with that. So what do you think about, um, you know, enabling youth and empowering youth in that in that way how important do you think that is to the solution yeah, for these grand challenges going forward it's critical uh and for many different reasons firstly because we owe it to the next generation uh to ensure they have a very safe clean environment for the future and that they actually have a future 
Um, so that's our, our job as, as each generation, uh, I believe that's what their legacy should be. I mean, uh, my job is to leave the planet in a better condition than when I arrived. Uh, that's how I see it. Um, you, you know, we, we, we sometimes get overwhelmed by the actual demands of living and uh, working and, and, and educating ourselves and forget why or, or actually don't think deeply enough about why we are here. And I don't want to leave the planet and I won't leave the planet going, gee, I wish I had worked harder or gee, I wish I had more money in the bank. What I want to, to leave, you know, to, to be thinking when I'm leaving uh, this realm is, gee, I've left the planet in a far better condition than when I was here or I've provided a future for the, for the next generation. Um, also, to change a habit and, and single-use plastic usage is a habit and it's a habit that, that I have uh, and that's because I grew up with it and it became such a useful tool for me that it became invisible to me. And I didn't know about single-use plastics. I didn't even know what that term was until uh, the producer of, of Plastic Oceans came to me and, and, and pointed this product out to me and told me the damage that it was doing. So education is critical and educating young people at a very early age is critical because it means they don't develop that habit and they actually learn about why something that is actually a design flaw, and that's what single-use plastics are, they're just a bad design, um, can be corrected through uh, better design, uh, uh, research, uh, financial support for young entrepreneurs, all of that sort of thing. So we need to empower young people, educate them, create the awareness, empower them, uh, and then provide the tools that they can correct the mistakes that uh, previous generations have made. Yeah. Now, as a young person yourself, you grew up next to the ocean. So, you know, this uh, um, beautiful part of Tasmania that you grew up on is really, you know, uh, probably a lot of what where your inspiration to um, really step up and do something to preserve that uh, the, the ocean for future generations. So tell us a little bit, storytelling is really in your blood, isn't it, Craig? You come from a, a, a family of journalists and, and you, you got your start yes. in storytelling um, back in Tasmania. Tell us a little bit about where you got and, and how you did get that start. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, and I just, to go give you some background, I grew up on the beach on the northwest coast of Tasmania in a place called Ocean Vista, which was the suburb of uh, one of the main cities in that part of the world called Burnie. And it was a small community, um, but a very supportive community. And I think that's uh, vital in terms of the influence that we have growing up. Uh, you know, we are influenced by the elders that are around us, how they act and speak and what they're interested in. Um, and my parents were big travelers. My father, particularly because he was a journalist, he was a, a sports journalist uh, at the Advocate newspaper. and. Uh, his father was the editor of that paper and his grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, ran the advertising uh, at that paper and other newspapers before that. So there, there, there was this family lineage that went on there. My father travelled around the world uh, covering sporting events, the major sporting events, the major tennis, Wimbledon and the international cricket, uh, the world championship billiards, uh, all sorts of fantastic sports. and because in those days there was no internet, there was no wire service then as we knew it um, to, to cover sports. 
journalists have to go away for the newspapers and actually cover it. And being um, very true to his journalistic ethics, he had a very good reputation. And a lot of these sports stars actually became friends with my father. So when there was an international event in Australia, they'd come and visit us and stay with us. So, you know, we had uh, Greg Chappell, this famous Australian cricketer and Bish and Beatty, uh, people like um, Eddie Charlton, you know, world mm -hmm. champion, multiple yeah. world champion, billiards snooker player, staying with us. And so they taught me a lot about um, internationalism, uh, other cultures, different accents. Uh, they told me about the places they came from, the, the villages that they grew up in, how they became sports stars, what drove them. And it was, you know, I consider that a very, you know, a great privilege. I mean, we've, you know, my family's never been a wealthy family, but in terms of finances, but in terms of the wealth of the knowledge uh, and the the uh, worldliness that I was exposed to, it was incredibly rich and deep. And that really instituted, I, I get it built into me a desire to travel myself. And so that's something that um, that I, I did. Um, uh, and after I became a journalist, uh, which wasn't something I wanted to do, by the <laughs> way, I, because of the family heritage, yeah. I, I had no interest in being a journalist and was, you know, wanted to be a vet. Um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a park ranger uh, because of my interest in at wildlife and animals and the ocean. Um, I wanted to be David Attenborough. And, and that's what my focus was. And my focus was on on wildlife and and uh, you know birds of the world and I could name a bird from anywhere on the planet and tell you if it was male or female just by looking at a photograph uh, by the age of eight. So there was that deep interest in in wildlife and and the support systems they lived in. Um, so journalism wasn't on the radar, but it was something that when it was presented to me, uh, I found I was actually quite good at and. And so I, uh, I ended up pursuing it. And you so great. You grew up in a small community, really, uh, in Tasmania. I mean, you are you you now part of a, a much greater global community. But you also, as in the way that small communities function, you were involved in surf lifesaving from a young age as well. And um, t tell us a little bit about what you think participating in those kinds of um, community organisations at a young age, what kind of things do they teach you that you've also brought forward um, and used during your uh, career as a filmmaker? Yeah, the, the surf lifesaving is a, an incredible community because it's a very large group of people who are very dedicated to the sport because of this combined uh, love of the ocean. And we use that love of the ocean uh, to, to uh, drive ourselves into volunteering um, on the beaches uh, at weekends you know, on almost every beach around Australia. And, and this is, you know, the, the hours that Surf Lifesavers put into volunteering and patrolling beaches is immense and it's incredible. And I think that to some degree, we've just become very blasé about the work that they do and uh, the contribution they make to the community. But as a young person, um, they teach you the value of that community responsibility. They teach you the value of being part of a team, of giving back to the community and the satisfaction that you can get from doing that. You don't have to be paid uh, to, to do something well. 
and to get satisfaction from it. But also they allow you um, access to all these wonderful uh, sporting equipment, you know, the Malibus, the, the race skis, the surf boats, which you couldn't afford on your own as a young person, at least I couldn't at that time, but which the club had. And so, you know, I, three times a week, I'd be up at 5 a.m. in the morning. I'd be standing by the side of the road waiting for um, uh, one of the, the seniors to pick me up, take me to training, and, and we'd train. And we'd train 20 or 30 hours a week from a very young age. And that training itself forced into you a discipline that I think has helped me throughout my life in terms of if you want to succeed, you have to put the work in. And if you want to succeed by putting the work in, you need to turn up on time and you can't let other people down. And these are values that I think are critical to being successful in any business. And I see this now in leaders in, in the corporate sphere, politically successful politicians, successful CEOs and executives of companies. They have uh, these tools that many of them developed at a young age um, through similar sorts of exercises. And um, I think, you know, the military also produces that in, in many people. And you see many people in the finance arena, which I deal in with a lot now in terms of um, working on a lot of these environmental issues who have backgrounds in the military and, and they, they use that precision and that training uh, to achieve what they want to within their own ambitions. So it, it was very, it was critical to me. And, and I'm, you know, I, I love the surf lifesaving in Australia and, it's one thing that, uh, one of many things that I really miss when I'm overseas, but um, I always go back to the surf club when I'm home. And uh, when I come home, as I'm planning to, um, to build a, a more of a life here in the near future, then I'll be back to a surf club wherever I'm living. It's a great, uh, iconic Aussie institution. And it's, it's so important to hear um, just how much participating in that actually informs um, your life and, 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 keeps, and keeps giving and, and actually enables you to sort of uh, move, take the lessons that you've learned there and uh, use them in these, in these bigger spheres where, you know, it's very important um, to be able to engage people in a, in a broad way. Um, mm. And that leads us really to, your, to talk about your next big project, um, which is your film, The Last Glaciers. Um, and this is moving on from um, your work that you've done with Ocean Plastic, which is obviously still ongoing, to starting to look at uh, glaciers, which are, are really uh, such a, a powerful visual indicator of a warming climate. But also glaciers mm -hmm. are not easy to get to either. So in fact, to do what you'll tell us in a, in a moment about um, actually the, the, the physical demands of making uh, the next film, but um, even to get up and have a look at a glacier means that you've added to your uh, adventure skills of, of, you know, surf life, saving, surfing and diving, and those of being a mountaineer as well. So tell us about The Last Glaciers. What inspired you to take on this almost opposite end of the spectrum to the ocean? Yeah, it is completely the opposite in every single way, and you've outlined some of those reasons why, which we'll get to, but... Uh, it didn't start out as a climate change film. Um, it started out as an extreme sports film. After spending eight years making an impact documentary, I wanted to do something different. And I was invited into the mountains by 
a good friend of mine who's a para-alpinist, uh, which is a sport practiced by only 40 or 50 people around the world, which involves mountaineering, climbing, ice climbing, and paragliding off the peaks of mountains. And, uh, and Malcolm invited me to, to come and have a look at this sport because he thought it would make a, a, a really interesting film. And so I went to Val d'Isere in the European Alps to take a look at what they were doing and, and do an assessment for the documentary. And when I arrived uh, in the middle of winter, instead of seeing white snow peaks, uh, all I saw was brown. And I was shocked at how brown actually the mountains were. They were supposed to be white. And when I spoke to Malcolm and his friends and guides and extreme sports athletes about why that was the case if this was usual they all told me that over the past 30 to 40 years what had, was happening was that the mountains were becoming drier uh, there was less snow every year and the glaciers in these mountains were retreating at a very fast rate up the mountains and disappearing and i wanted to find out more about this this is where the journalistic curiosity kicks in um, so I went and, and found the local meteorologist and spoke to him about this and said, look, these anecdotes that I'm being told, are these actually correct? Are you seeing this in the data? And he took me through the data and, and basically said, yes, this has been uh, a problem that's been going on for the last hundred or so years since records have been taken in that area and that it was speeding up. Uh, what they were seeing was that the ice melt was increasing. And I left the mountains, went back to Hong Kong, and I was thinking deeply about this and why. And everyone was telling me that it was because of climate change. And when I started looking into climate change, I found that the science was extremely dense uh, and it was varied. You know, there's a lot going on with climate change and there's a lot of science to understand around it because you know, climate change is a many varied thing. And it just so happened that I was giving a talk in Hong Kong uh, at a banking forum, and there was a scientist called Jerome Chapelas from the Grenoble Glacial Institute, which is the oldest glacial institute on the planet. And he gave a talk about a project called the Ice Memory Project. And this is a project where scientists from his institute traveled around the world, and they extracted core samples from glaciers uh, at different depths, and they analyzed the frozen bubbles within these cores. And within the frozen bubbles um, were the, uh, the atmospheres that existed going back a million years. And so what they were able to tell was what the levels of methane, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, water vapor, and even the temperature of the atmosphere 100,000, 200,000, 500,000, 800,000, a million years ago. And that allowed them to do a very accurate measurement of what was happening with warming and cooling on the planet. And what they'd seen was this natural oscillation um, of uh, heating, cooling, uh, gases rising, diminishing as the earth wobbled around the sun in its elliptical orbit. Up until 160 years ago, when the graph of these gases just goes off the chart. And it just so happens to coincide with the Industrial Revolution. 
that's when we started burning fossil fuels. And in fact, what they can see at that point also is sediment that is trapped in the ice line of 160 years ago. That is soot um, that started to develop as a result of the burning of fossil fuels. So they know without any doubt that um, we are heating the planet, that climate change is real, uh, and that humans are responsible for it. And when I found that out, it was the first time anyone had shown me the science in such a simplified form that I thought an eight-year-old could understand it. And when I thought an eight-year-old could understand it, I suddenly realised there's a documentary there and there's a trick that we'd been missing as storytellers in telling the climate story all this time. And so I went back to Malcolm Wood, uh, the, the extreme sports buddy of mine, and said, I think we've got a climate change story here, not an extreme sports story. Uh, and so Malcolm agreed and came on to produce the film with me. But what we did was we included the extreme sports component in the film because we thought if we're going to tell this story, we want people to come along and watch this film, an impact film on the climate that normally wouldn't go and see a documentary film about the climate or, or an impact documentary. And so the extreme sports is an element that is woven through the film. And that's because in order to get up into the glaciers to film with the scientists, I needed to train to become uh, an extreme sports athlete myself to be able to climb into these hostile areas and, uh, and have the skills to do so. So we pivoted on the documentary and, um, and now it's it's kind of both. It's a bit of both. So uh, we got the best of both. And that, that's great because you'll also engage that adventure community. And that is a big community globally. And what, Massive And, and one that gets out yeah. into nature and gets uh, to see the effects of climate change, perhaps more so than those of us who tend to stay at home in the cities. That's a good point. And, and yes, and, and that's why we had them telling the story uh, as well as locals uh, people who live in the mountains, because this is their story. They're on the ground. They're being affected by what's happening there. Uh, not the politicians sitting in uh, their their buildings in, in cities around the world. It's these guys. And their story is real. And uh, it has to be listened to because what's happening to them is affecting everyone else. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet right now. Yeah, and I guess um, as well as... Um the indication of of of, of what uh, climate change is doing um, on the grand scale of the glaciers, I guess it also makes that environment very dangerous. I would imagine, or more dangerous than it was. Yeah, very much more dangerous, and you see that in the film um, actually, and and which you know was was even more difficult for me because I have a profound fear of heights. I'm an oceans <laughs> guy. Um, I'm not. My mind finds it very difficult to get around um, uh, staring over a cliff into a 2,000-metre abyss, um, which is weird because, I, I mean, I have my pilot's licence, but being surrounded by a tin and flying an aircraft is a very different feeling psychologically uh, because you have that safety of being in control. And I think that's what being in high places, to me, why it presents a fear because I feel I'm not in control. And so in order to go into these environments, I had to get these guys to train me to overcome that fear, which was a 12-month process. We trained, uh, we trained 
in the mountains in Taiwan, first of all, we trained then in the European Alps. And it really was a tough process for me uh, because uh, Malcolm and the team that he put together to train me uh, had no sympathy and <laughs> didn't hold back and, in fact, enjoyed frightening the hell out of me at every possible moment that they could. And so what we did was we also filmed that because I thought it was important that the audience understood the risks we were taking to tell the story, which, you know, I think conveys the importance of the story, but also the analogy of the personal challenge to me is I think the same as the analogy of the challenge we all face with the climate crisis. And so there was a subliminal uh, narrative thread that goes throughout the film where the audience is coming along with me, experiencing the fear that I'm, I'm experiencing and also understanding, hopefully transmitting that empathy into the empathy of understanding why the climate is changing, how it's changing, and why we need to, to solve this problem. Um, so, so it was, it, you know, it, it was really key that we told the story uh, from many different places on the planet. We, we did travel to 12 places, as you mentioned, over four years, but we did three main expeditions. One was to the European Alps, where we did the training. Uh, we went to Peru, the Andes, and we went to the Himalaya. Uh, and the reason we chose those places was because Peru, uh, oddly, and I say oddly because I didn't realise this until I started researching it, and our scientists said, you've got to go to Peru because Peru is struggling. It's losing its glaciers and migration is already happening. And Peru is one of the driest places on the planet. Uh, Lima is in, in the top 10 driest cities in the world. And it is a moonscape when you go there and you drive outside of Lima and, and into the mountains. It's just lunar-like. There's no water anywhere, sand dunes and rock. And people survive there on the glacial melt. And Peru has declared a national emergency because in 1990, satellites measured more than 780 glaciers in the Andes in Peru. Today, they are only counting uh, 350 or so. So Peru has lost more than half of its glaciers in 30 years, which is astounding. And when you go into Peru and you realise how important this water is for hydration, for humans, for livestock, for cropping and agriculture, and also for the mining that they do then, and you understand that this tap is being turned off and by the end of the century, these glaciers will not exist, then you understand the national emergency that that country has uh, because uh, they're going to be without water. And when people are without water, then borders no longer matter. And migration is already a major issue in Peru as people move out of the mountains and into the more urban environments, searching for water and, and jobs and places uh, that they can uh, survive with their families. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it sounds um, like an amazing uh, uh, film visually and with the power of the message that's going to come through in it and it's going to be something that will pe people will really be able to grasp the urgency of the situation. So, Craig, tell us when, that, when the film will be coming out and how people will be able to see it. Yes, so there are two versions of the film. Um, the 
first version will be on IMAX, which is super exciting. They're a great brand to work with. Um, and as a director, there's nothing more exciting than seeing your work on a giant screen. It just comes alive. It's, uh, it tells a story all of its own. And it is, it, you do actually see different things within the footage that you've shot. So we're excited to be launching with IMAX in March 2022. And then we have another version, uh, which is a longer cinematic version, which will be released in cinemas and on a streamer, which we're yet to announce. Um, and that will happen a month after the IMAX version is released. So the IMAX version will be in the uh, giant screens in the museums, the science institutions, in the domes, uh, which is cool all over the world. And a month after that, there will be a more public release across platforms and cinemas around the globe. Well, we look forward to seeing that. And what's next for you? What's your next project? Uh, my next project is a holiday <laughs> and to enjoy Australia and um, uh, and soak up uh, what I've missed for the past two years as I've been um, uh, locked out of the country with COVID. So it's great to be back. And, and it really is. I'm, you really do miss Australia uh, when you're away. Um, it is such a unique country. But um, there's a lot of projects. We're looking at a, a special digital platform that we hope will proved to be a solution to uh, a lot of the single-use plastics and environmental issues in terms of helping create smarter consumerism. Um, we will announce more about that with, in due course. We're releasing a, a podcast and a newsletter um, which will follow my travels around the world and uh, allow people access to the information that I'm getting as I get it with scientists and corporate and political leaders. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's so much information we get that I want to share that with people. Uh, and there's uh, two new TV series that we're working on. Um, I've just signed up for a new TV series that's being funded by an American production company, which will start early next year. And there's another positive content TV series that uh, I've been working on for the past three years, which uh, we're now out seeking financing for. So lots of projects on, all continuing um, the, the work that we do in the environmental space. And um, uh, one that, uh, you know, we all, my team and myself, we, we really enjoy doing it. We're very privileged to be able to enjoy the work and uh, and continue well look i i hope you get back down to tasmania on this trip and and get back into the waters and and and, and enjoy uh, being back in your hometown and congratulations on your tasmanian australian of the year award and it's been great to have you on the show today thanks very much it's been great to share the adventure that's it for today's episode of talking australia if you have any questions or comments feel free to reach out Write us an email at podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time.